and welcome to the Focal Therapy Clinic. My name is Claire Delmar, and in this audio series, I'm going to introduce you to some issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and almost never talked about. Earlier this month, prostate cancer was acknowledged as the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. To kick off the series, I'm speaking with Tim Dutteridge, consulting urologist at the Focal Therapy Clinic and a leading innovator in imaging-led diagnostics and targeted treatment for prostate cancer. Tim has been a vocal advocate for focal therapy from his base at University Hospital Southampton and has contributed to several pivotal clinical studies and trials on prostate imaging and focal therapy. He's also chairman of Doctors of the World UK, a charity that helps people to access healthcare through free clinics and helplines, advocacy work, and international programs. Tim, thanks for joining me. It's a great pleasure to join you today, and uh, thank you for inviting me. So um, why don't we kick off straight away just to uh, allow our listeners to understand who you are, where you come from. What, what was your journey to becoming a leading champion of focal therapy? Well, I guess uh, early in my career as a uh, trainee urologist, uh, open prostatectomy was a big deal. It was you know, a big operation for big surgeons, and the patients had a big recovery as well. You know, they were in hospital for a few days. They had a big incision and you know, complications were quite frequently seen. But anyway, I was interested in cancer in general. And during my training, we saw a lot of things happen. Minimally invasive surgery, uh, you know, came about um, in the sort of early to mid 2000s, I guess. And that really started to show us that this operation could be done in a more sort of gentle way with smaller incisions, uh, an easier recovery. And it was around the same sort of time that we saw innovations with imaging and with technology that allowed minimally invasive treatment. And really the combination of things, you know, where we're pushing for more minimal access surgery, where we started to realize that cancer, you know, in the prostate didn't necessitate the whole prostate to be treated. We got better and better with the new technology of identifying where the cancer was. Mapping biopsy became a thing and we could start to prove the location of the cancer with biopsies. And the technologies for treating the cancer became more widespread and gave us more options. We could start to tailor these treatments uh, you know, to individual patients. So the whole landscape really changed. And the other really big change that happened in, in, the, in the same period was that we started to have a, an environment where patients were more and more empowered to make choices about their treatments. So we were obliged to inform patients of all of the choices that were relevant to them and even if we recommended one above the others, you know, the patients were empowered to choose the one that suited them the best. And this was, this was all the, as a result of the Montgomery ruling. And, uh, and that has changed how we consent people for treatment and how we give them what I like to call as informed choice rather than just taking informed consent, which is perhaps, uh, you know, where we've been starting from. Yeah. So, so let, me, let me stop you there. So, um, so when you were starting about that, um, you know, impetus towards more choice, I, I was thinking in my head, oh, is that because people are looking online more and they have more access to, you know, freely available information on their condition? But maybe you could tell me a little bit more about this Montgomery ruling. Well, uh, Montgomery, Nadine Montgomery, in fact, I was on a panel with her just the other day in a medical legal conference, and uh, she tells this amazing, tragic story where she, she wasn't fully informed of her choices uh, for childbirth. She had very particular circumstances, and somebody uh, had a very fixed view on, on what should happen, and she didn't get a chance to choose an alternative, and unfortunately, there was a very bad outcome affecting her son. And this eventually, after 15 years of legal fights, basically led to a ruling that uh, changed the whole uh, process of uh, what our obligations are to patients in terms of explaining what the options are, 
um, and, and making sure patients are empowered to have an individual choice and not just uh, the sort of standard recommendation. Um, and, and so that means that we're obliged as clinicians to make sure in every case that the patient's individual circumstances are taken into account when describing the options available. Uh, we may have a favored option from the point of view of uh, a sort of medical uh, fraternity. Uh, there may be multiple favored options, but there may also be options that perhaps are second best, but certain patients may favor that as their first choice. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that uh, this, this concept is more widely understood. And certainly patients who go searching for information definitely understand it because they look at things that uh, might make the grade from a point of view of one outcome like cancer effectiveness and that may well be the most important thing for mm -hmm, them. But, mm -hmm. but other people may value other things more strongly and may be prepared to take their chances on cancer effectiveness mm -hmm. uh, particularly with prostate cancer because we know that even if you do nothing at 10 years there's not a hell of a lot of difference in the survival so mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people favor uh, functional outcomes over the cancer effectiveness rate and, and if that's their preference, we have to empower them to make that choice. So mm -hmm. um, not a lot of people share that point of view. And that's because I think people are still fixed in the idea of the doctors knowing best and, and relying on randomized control trials to sort of be the only thing to tell them what to do. And I mm -hmm. think that we have to imagine a more holistic approach where, yes, it's really important to understand which treatment has the best outcome for cancer. That's an important bit of knowledge, but mm -hmm. it's not the only thing that can uh, drive a patient's choice, and we need to recognize that. Hmm. And when did this Montgomery ruling um, actually um, take place? Uh, you're pushing me on the date, but uh, effectively it's backdated, so roughly from the point of time when this uh, case occurred, which I think is like 15 years ago. Right, right. Um, the actual ruling, uh, I'd have to look it up to be honest. Yeah, okay, but it's codified in law is basically what you're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's been to the yeah. Supreme Court, so yeah. this is... Uh, this is a very strong ruling and, uh, and we're still, even today, I was having email with my, with my colleagues about how we adjust our practice to incorporate this into, uh, into practice. And, and one of the interesting things is improving consent and information is still an ongoing journey for everybody and we're still working on it. Uh, you know, it, it's, been, it's been talked about for many years, but yeah. it's still improvement. And, um, and, and individualized uh, consent forms so related to the procedure, but also then individualize the patient's circumstances, describing what alternatives have been talked about and, uh, you know, what risks have been discussed. You know, this, this is, uh, it takes a lot of time to do it really well, and uh, it's a challenge. So tell us how that might affect um, a man who comes to you and has had a diagnosis of early stage prostate cancer. How, how would this ruling and how would your interpretation of it play out with his pathway? Well, let me just describe a case which I guess most typifies the, the difficult situation when it comes to focal therapy. So if you have a man who's had a, a high PSA, let's just say it's seven, and they've had a scan and it shows a lesion very clearly on one side and very clearly the rest of the prostate is normal. And they have a biopsy and for sake of argument, they have a good quality biopsy with targeted biopsies and systematic biopsies going through the rest of the prostate. And, and just to make it really easy, let's just say that lesion was cancer and everything else was not cancer. They may be at a, a center that uh, goes, you know, they discuss it in their meeting and they say, you're suitable for surgery or radiotherapy. Now in that circumstance, just because they don't practice focal therapy, I first of all think it's a mistake for them not to mention it. Mm -hmm. and, they, and I think they should mention it. It's very clearly a reasonable treatment option. People may argue about the lack of evidence for long-term 
comparative effectiveness, and I would agree. Patients need to know that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's still a reasonable option. Now, according to NICE guidance, and I would agree with this, that ideally that patient should be having focal therapy within a clinical trial within the NHS where we're obliged to not only look after resources, provide good treatments, but also make sure that those treatments are effective. I totally agree with that recommendation. Mm -hmm. but, if they, but if they can't go into a clinical trial, it's also uh, important that these patients are studied within a, a clinical registry, and we have one of those up and running for all of these focal treatments. And I totally agree with that too. But these are not reasons, if you don't offer those things locally, to deny the patient the knowledge of those options mm -hmm. and, and the choice to seek them elsewhere um, if, they, if they decide that they prefer that. Mm -hmm. And you're quite, those clinicians are quite entitled to make a recommendation that surgery has greater evidence for long-term success with the cancer point of view. But they're also obliged to say that the side effect profile is greater yeah. than focal therapy. Mm -hmm. And so unless the patient's armed with all this information, I really don't think that any of those patients can be given uh, an, an informed choice. And, and when they come to have a procedure like surgery, that the consent that's being offered, I, I just don't agree that that is proper informed consent. Wow. So I think it's, you know, I, I've, I've made this kind of bold claim and we, we got a, um, a, an article eventually developed in the Daily Mail, which kind of covered these issues. Uh, but I, what I tried to explain to that journalist was that this is actually uh, almost a scandal that people uh, do not understand that the breadth of choice with prostate cancer needs to be described to patients Mm -hmm. even if clinicians don't necessarily agree. And, you know, there's no dispute that this technology, this treatment exists. We have outcome data which describes a certain thing. And, and if somebody fits the description of a suitable patient, uh, I can't see any justification for denying patients the information that that mm -hmm. choice is there. And, and I, I feel very strongly about that. No, I can tell. And, and um, I think I, I know the article you're talking about. It was quite recent, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, about, and it listed a bunch of choices and it did include, I remember, and that, that was obviously part of your input into that, that piece. Mm. So, I mean, would you be willing to go out on a limb and say what percentage of consulting urologists that, that deal with men with prostate cancer actually practice um, according to the to the way you suggest? Uh, I think it's, it's impossible to say like yes or no to individuals because even in my own practice, I look at, I reflect on what I'm doing and when you're under time pressure, sometimes you don't do it right. And mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't matter because you've looked at the patient, you're both on the same page and actually the choice that you're talking about, uh, you may not you know, be um, as good as you might imagine you to yourself to be, but actually you're on the same page with the patient. And so in practical, for practical purposes, you've made a good judgment and it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Uh, okay. What's really important is to read the situation. And if you read the situation that a patient is looking to really understand this choice, then that's the job of the clinician is to make sure that you're, uh, and this is why it's so hard. You can't have just a, a formula that you apply to every patient. You've got to read the situation. And if you've got a patient who's clearly wanting to, that they're anxious about side effects, they're anxious to get the right treatment. They're mm -hmm. anxious to get the one that's the most effective. You know, you've got to pick up on these cues and mm -hmm. really help the patient explore what that choice involves for them and what's important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, of course, there are days when I look at a patient and go, I think you'd be great for surgery. They say, yes, please. And mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very quick conversation. You give them the information pack. They've got a bunch of choices in there. If they really want to know, they'll find it. But mm -hmm. it, it, that could be a very brief conversation, and you might, it might be totally appropriate. But mm -hmm. if you misread that situation and the patient actually – really wants to know everything and you haven't done that, then you could find yourself in big trouble. And, and I, I sometimes find that I'm coming to operate on a patient who's seen another clinician and 
they've directed them towards radical prostatectomy and I meet them on the day of surgery and I see that they're an ideal focal therapy patient and then I'm very conflicted. Wow. Because that patient needs a conversation on the morning of their operation. I'm obliged to tell them what I think about the range of choices. And you know, I have had to cancel an operation on a day because the patient was uncertain and you can't, you know. Really? You, you, well, you can't move ahead on that day when the patient has in, in uncertainty introduced. And of course, I felt very bad that we then, you know, had wasted some time and everything, but I didn't feel that the consent process was valid. And ultimately, I'm doing the operation. I've got to be satisfied. So Absolutely. It's, 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 it's a complicated situation. And oh, I can see that in, um, um, in a lot of nuance. And as you say, it, in answer to your question, I think every clinician can do better. Yeah. You know, and I think that we shouldn't be trying to beat up the people who maybe don't meet the standard straight away. I think we should just be encouraging people to understand this Montgomery ruling, understand what it means for their practice, understand how to improve the information they're giving. I've been doing that today, so I'm not perfect by any means. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and understanding how to identify all of the options that are suitable for patients with prostate cancer. And even if you're not offering them those options yourself, Right, you're um, directing them to... And, and it's no accident that I, I've tried to offer all the treatment options available because, you know, I don't want to be giving patients away. Um, uh, but I've gone out and, you know, really learned how to offer all the good treatment options and I help the, the oncologist as well. And, uh, but clearly, if somebody needs radiotherapy uh, discussions, they see an oncologist. Mm-hmm. I, I make a great effort to explain uh, radiotherapy in a dispassionate way. Uh, but clearly stating the pros and cons as, as they're listed in the information sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, if, if a patient has any interest whatsoever in pursuing that, um, you know, argue, you know, they should see an oncologist anyway. But I, I think, again, you can't be 100% about that. I think everyone's circumstances are different. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, they, they should have the chance to consider every treatment. And, and, and the ruling actually helps them to do that. So that's really, that's really good to know. Now, um, I just want to shift the conversation a little bit um, just to add more complication to, uh, to this um, growth of, of patients uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer, and that's obviously COVID-19. I mean, we hear in the media about this huge backlog of cancer patients at various stages of diagnosis, and I'm wondering how this has impacted your ability to care for your prostate cancer patients, and, and possibly if you can extend how you see that impacting um, you know, the wider issue of, of hospitals themselves and health systems, you know, will we have millions of prostate cancer patients waiting for, for the diagnosis and treatment at the end of the year? Well, I, I think locally in Southampton, we've been very lucky because we already had established relationships with the local private hospitals for NHS work. We also had a Da Vinci robot. Uh, we had a mobile health system. Thank you, uh, Prostate Care, for being able to deliver high food wherever we needed it. And we had a cryotherapy system, again, Inspire, uh, to facilitate that. So we were able to, after a few weeks of a hiatus, um, work out what PPE we needed, and we had the capacity away from the hot site where the coronavirus patients were being situated, and we were able to get on with all of the elective surgery that we needed to. We had, thankfully, enough capacity to deal with our waiting times, and actually we've got better waiting times for cancer in, in the prostate department you know, than we've ever had. Really? Um, yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. Hmm. Um, but, but we are, I think, one of a few places that have been able to do that. Much of the country have their prostate services in the same site as where the coronavirus patients were being looked after. And as a result, we're more or less paralyzed with their activity. So there are many patients who have been started following the guidelines uh, you know, that were issued um, on hormonal therapy, which we would not normally give. Hmm. And they're basically patients 
on a very long waiting list, both for surgery and for uh, radiotherapy mm-hmm. and also for ablation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the centers that are doing ablation, I think we're one of a few that have had more or less uninterrupted services. Um, in Southampton, I think we've done uh, about 20 ablation cases in the past couple of months. And, uh, you know, that's, that's more or less our normal, I guess, I, our normal run rate. Um, and, and Tim, are you equating ablation with focal therapy here? Yes, ablation encompasses uh, focal therapy, uh, but also whole gland ablation for some patients after radiation mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. So, um, you know, ablation with high fuel cryotherapy has a role not just for focal therapy. I think that the whole gland ablation is sometimes appropriate. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So is what you're saying that, that the impact of COVID-19 has been quite variable across uh, the country? I think that's a good way of saying it, yeah. And, uh, but certainly there are pockets of the country where there will be a lot of men waiting on hormone therapy for their treatment to go ahead. And uh, um, for them, we're discovering I, uh, that we're getting calls from many patients who are in exactly that situation. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. And it also feeds back to your comments earlier about the Montgomery ruling because I think in some cases, at least when we are picking up that a lot of these men are sort of told to go on hormone therapy without, well, in many cases they don't have a choice, I suppose, because things well, are so backed up. Yeah. And, uh, and there's partly a defensive uh, action here by clinicians. Of course, we know that prostate cancer moves slowly and in some cases it, it may not metastasize in the period of months mm-hmm. um, and it's safe to just monitor people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah, has that, have all these patients been given a choice as to whether to be monitored or, or to go on hormones? I suspect it's a rushed uh, process for many of them. And mm-hmm. um, so that choice in itself. And the other thing that's happening is that they've got a lot more time to consider what's going on. And so I think we're seeing a lot of patients who are only finding out about focal therapy uh, after they're on a waiting list for surgery or radiotherapy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and after they've already started hormone treatment. Um, mm-hmm. that hormone treatment doesn't really interfere with focal therapy. If anything, it, there's a possibility it could be helpful. We're, mm-hmm. we're investigating that at the moment. Um, but uh, it, it's just interesting how uh, the coronavirus has, has led to more inquiries for this type of treatment. Hmm. And um, just to finish up on, on how COVID-19 has impacted uh, health systems or hospitals themselves, do you foresee um, cancer hubs and more clusters of care for these patients? Or how do you see changes playing out as a result of the virus? Well, I certainly know in London there have been kind of moves deemed necessary because of coronavirus to change how cancer pathways are working. And uh, there may well be some um, sort of politics going on things that were sort of deemed to be necessary before this happened. And, and there's an excuse to sort of make them happen now with less resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in our region, we're actually having a maybe more collegiate way of dealing with it, dealing, you know, helping to deal with waiting times. We haven't seen it sort of make a great impact yet, but it may be that hospitals that have a big problem with coronavirus might shift cases to one center one day. And if the situation is reversed, you know, the flow of patients may go the other way mm. uh, months later. So mm. um, I think that sort of teamwork in the NHS is great. Whether it leads uh, finally to uh, an even bigger regional organization, reorganization of prostate cancer services, uh, you know, you could see on the South coast how having a big prostate cancer hospital might make sense in some respects, but um, I don't see that happening in the short term. I think yeah. this is, um, you know, maybe a bigger long-term plan for the politician. Yeah. yeah. Tim, I really want to thank you for your insights. Um, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. I mean, the one thing I will say about this 
prostate cancer in the UK right now is it it's continues to enjoy innovation from people like you and your colleagues and um, you know we'll look forward to hearing the next development. Well I'm really pleased that I'm part of a, a kind of a part of urology which is uh, constantly on the move constantly improving and really resp sort of responsive to patients uh, needs you know and uh, so we just need to keep listening to the patients and what they want. Absolutely. If you'd like to look, learn more about Tim's work and about the Focal Therapy Clinic, visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk. Thanks, Tim. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. Mm -hmm.